Welcome to The God Solution, a place where we discuss solid evidence for the Christian faith and interviews with leading Christian apologists. Each week, you'll be encouraged in your faith and equipped to defend it and share it in your daily life. You can find out more about The God Solution at godsolutionshow.com. Now, here's your host, Nate Herbst. Welcome to The God Solution Show, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm excited that you're tuned in. Today, we're going to be interviewing Jay Warner Wallace, world-renowned Christian apologist and police officer and detective. He's going to be talking about the Black Lives Matter innocent people being shot by police, police being killed by other people. He's going to be talking about all that that's in the news today in a Christian response to those issues. Well, welcome to the God Solution Show, Jay Warner Wallace. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Good to be here. Well, you are uniquely qualified to talk about a lot of what's been in the news recently. For one, you're a lifelong police officer and a detective, a cold case homicide detective. And for two, you are a Christian apologist. And a lot of people in the audience know that Christian apologetics involves giving a response. In fact, that's the Greek word that's used in 1 Peter 3.15, where we're told to give a response. And so when we think about police officers qualified to give a response concerning a lot of what's going on right now, you come right to the forefront of my mind. So thanks for being here. Well, well I'm glad that you know, this is something that typically I'll just tell you, and you probably know my work, is that I, I try to stay tightly in my lane, making the case for Christianity, making the case for God's existence, making the case for the reliability of Scripture. But as we see the culture kind of drifting in this, in this direction, and by the way, this has been every generation of cops, and my dad was a cop for 28 years before I did my 25, and my son's about five years into his career. And I can tell you that uh, every generation has to, has really had to see a little bit of this and had to deal with some of this. But now I think we're in an unusual place where it's not just a dangerous job, but but we, we see that that clearly um, cops are being targeted. And, the, and I'm sure the people in the African-American community have always felt that way. And so it's really about us trying to, 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 to bridge this divide by helping each side see where we're coming from and then really admitting on both sides where we can do better. And so that's why I tried to write, start writing about this in the last couple of weeks. Well, that's an important and a humble response. First of all, before we go any further, I just want to say thank you for your service as it regards your police work. Of course, I'm thankful for your apologetics as well, but thank you for your service. Well, thanks so much for saying that. I always, I'm kind of, uh, it always strikes me as, you know, we're just average. Most people work in law enforcement, well, all of us. We are just average people who went through this vetting process to hopefully do something we thought we were called to do, even if we weren't Christians or believers or, or theists. We felt like this job was something we were called to do. And and so you really feel quite pedestrian and ordinary while you're doing it. And so then when someone says, well, you know, thanks for your service, well, I'm always uh, almost uncomfortable because I feel like, well, anybody can mm-hmm. do that. I mean, anybody mm-hmm. could have done this job. But, but yeah, you're right. I mean, there are a certain risk, I guess. So in the sense that those who still continue to want to do this job going forward and that we know the risk and we're willing to do it despite the risk, I guess that is something that we, I think we're going to find, honestly, less and less people who are going to be wanting to do it. Unfortunately, I think you're right. Well, let me tell you a little bit about my background, and I want the audience okay. to hear this. I grew up as a missionary kid all over the planet, and I lived in some pretty hostile countries. We lived in South and Central America throughout the 80s and early 90s. There were a lot of dangers there. We moved to Eastern Europe for all my teenage years. It was not a very dangerous place, but the police were not necessarily on your side all the time. 
I have this distinct memory of my 14th birthday. It was a Sunday. We'd always been told, don't change money with the street money changers, but all the official places were closed because it was a Sunday. So we tried to be as careful as we could, held the money really tight, got their money in the other hand, counted it, and we didn't even expect what was about to happen. The guy in front of us, we had him under control, but his buddy, who we didn't even know about, came and grabbed half the money out of my mom's hand from behind. When she turned to look at that guy, the guy in front of her grabbed the other half, and they ran in two different directions. We tracked the guy down, and we found him in a coffee shop. No doubt he'd just bought some coffee with our money. And there was a police officer standing right next to him. We told the police officer this guy just robbed us of $100. The police officer laughed at us and did absolutely nothing. He was part of the whole <laughs> the business, I guess. So that experience and countless others gave me a profound sense of gratitude for what we have in this country. I can call the police at any time and know they're on my side. They're going to help me. They're going to be there to protect me and my family. So I'm thankful for the police here. And of course, as a Christian, I hurt for the families of those who are innocently gunned down. So we're going to talk about some of this stuff today. So what's going on in our nation? Well, okay, so part of it, let me just get to a really critical foundational issue. Um, we, we have this charge of racism, and I absolutely agree with it. I, I think that we, there's, there's racists in every group. Uh, if it's police officers, doctors, firemen, uh, civil rights leaders, uh, professors, politicians, there are racists in every group, and here's why. We are all cut from the same human cloth, mm -hmm. and we all have our, a deeply rebellious fallen nature that prides itself, that's a good word I think you use here, on not so much racism. I, it's, it's, I call this otherism. It's that we will find some way to separate from everyone else and say our group is better. And even if there were no races and every male looked identical and every female looked identical, we would then retreat to something else that we would use to separate from the other group and say our group is better. And, and this is what this is this this fallen nature of who we are is described perfectly. In, in, Christian, in the Christian worldview, but when our culture moves further and further away from the Christian worldview, then the explanatory power of Christian anthropology, you know, this idea that we are created in God's image and all of us are capable of great beauty, yet at the same time are deeply rebellious and fallen and want to chase our own lusts, passions, and prideful position, authority, respect, we chase all of that to the exclusion of others. That's just the nature of who we are, and in the same person, we're, we're dualistic. We're, we, we, are, we have both. It's the enigma of man. And, and the, the Christian worldview explains this and even gives us a pathway to deal with it. But, but don't be surprised if we are going to reject our Christian foundations and reject the Christian worldview, this will be, get worse and worse because we don't see the common things that we all share, which are really three things that are the foundation of all worldviews. How do we get here? Why is it so messed up? How do we fix it? Those three questions, if we were united in our worldview, would have a common answer. But even if we aren't united in our worldview, there's still that's the, those are the three things we share in common. All of us are created in God's image, deeply fallen in need of a Savior. And, and if we could stop for a moment and ask ourselves, the, the stuff that separates us, is it as important as the stuff that is common to all of us? No, it's not. But we tend to focus on what separates us. Again, it's just part of our fallen nature. Then on what? So I always say, hey, you know, look, we got to stop calling it the other side. There is no other side. We got to love the other mm -hmm. side, but there is no other side. 
Mm-hmm. And that's part of the way we love is to, 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 to get rid of this idea that we are somehow different. Oh, you're different because you're racially different? Really? You're, we're still the same fallen humans in need of a savior. And, and so I think that this is hard. It's hard for me to make this case amongst law enforcement unless all of us happen to be Christian, and we're not. Mm-hmm. And it's hard for me to make this case amongst any minority group unless all of us share that common worldview, and of course we don't. And we're moving further and further away from that. So this is going to be harder and harder, I think, for us to reconcile. I don't see this as a problem that's, that we have an easy fix for. I actually think it's it's on a trajectory that probably isn't great. Yeah, it's terrifying. I mean, how does the average police officer feel right now when they report to work in the morning? I mean, that I don't even know what goes through their mind. Is this my last day? Is this it? Well, again, a lot of it – I wrote the, an article last week called Six Things That Might Change the Way You Think About Police Officers, and I know that was relatively controversial because it really is coming from this one side of the equation, the police officer side of the equation. And I recognize that there is an important African-American side of the equation, which is just as, as valid, that has to be addressed. But because I'm a white male who works in law enforcement, I can really only contextualize it you know, from my own position, so I have to start there. And I can do – I think I, I can do some research, and I can, I can try my best to see the balance in it. But I just wanted people to see that part of the problem is that if you don't understand what – that the culture doesn't even understand what it is they're asking us to do. And what typically happens is every time we start a shift, we look at crime reports from the day before we, we actually work that shift to see what's happening in our city. And is there a commonality and suspect description that we ought to be looking for? Or is there a series of crimes with no description of a suspect, but we know we've got a bunch of cars stolen overnight in this particular part of town? If we see that kind of a pattern, well, then guess what we're going to do in our patrol uh, uh, work tomorrow? We're going to be patrolling that area in the middle of the night because we think that cars are going to be stolen from that area. So what we do is always in response to the reports of crimes, and here's the problem. If the reports of crimes we receive seem to be all in a certain region, then that region is going to get special attention. If it seems to be all of a certain kind of described suspect that the, the victims are describing, well, then that's the kind of suspect we're going to look for. And that's a harsh reality. I know it's not an a, 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 um, easy truth, and it's not a palatable truth for a lot of people. But what we have sometimes is that we notice that some groups in some parts of the city are involved in crimes at a higher level than others. So then we're stuck having to deal with that reality, even though that reality precedes us. Now think about that for a second. If, if you are called as a paramedic to treat a heart attack, you're not charged with um, also treating the cause of the heart attack. You know, you can't, we're not there to <laughs> yeah. be able to eat better or to exercise more. So, so we get called as police officers to treat the crisis, but we don't really have a lot to do with the foundational issues that cause the crisis, and we can talk about that. Is it, is it systemic racism in our culture? I'm sure that's part of it. Is it also the collapse of the family? That's definitely part of it. Is it the collapse of a Christian worldview that, that, that has a transcendent standard that we can all shoot for? That's going to be part of it too. But as officers, we can't deal with that. We have to deal with this other. Now, let me just flip the coin real quick. I know we're going to be short on time, but let me just flip the coin for a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a percentage of officers who will lose their temper, who will do the wrong thing on an occasion. I'm not, there's no doubt in that, and I'm sure there's a percentage of officers that have racist inclinations, okay? Because we're coming out of the general population. You're going to hire us out of the general population, and if you're going to hire humans to do this job, then get ready. Some percentage you're not going to like because that's just how we represent ourselves in the culture. From the other side, though, I think it would be fair to say that there's going to be racists in every group, including the other side that complains about racism. There will be some share of that there as well. 
But we don't want as officers to be judged by this small percentage. And I could argue how small the percentage is. If you look at, for example, the number of police contacts every year with the public, and then how many of those turn into violent interactions in which somebody dies, it's incredibly low. But regardless, let's just say there are some percentage of police officers we shouldn't even probably have in law enforcement. Well, on the other side, there's a small percentage also that are involved in crime. Officers don't want African-Americans to judge us on the basis of those people who are in our group who are doing what they shouldn't do. But it's fair, I think, for them to be able to say, well, don't judge us. Because if you look at the arrest statistics for black males and and African-American females, for example, you'll see that it's always around about 9%. That means that 91% of that community is law-abiding. So we cannot look at the other side in either direction and judge a huge majority by a small minority. And both sides have an inclination to do this. And so the first thing we have to do is get good information in our hands to realize that that we aren't dealing, although they get all the press, the the 9% or the 10%, whatever the percentages is on both sides, they get all the negative press. Keep balance on this. That's not who we are. But also, always look at it through the lens of your Christian worldview and understand that as humans, I expect this kind of thing. If there's an opportunity for racism, I expect it. If there's an opportunity for any kind of otherism, I expect it because that's the nature of who we are as Christians, mm-hmm. as, a, as a human, through our Christian worldview. Yeah, and that's, again, we as Christians come to this with this realization that we're intrinsically flawed, that we're sinful. And there are answers in Christ that I don't believe we find anywhere else. So, so far this year, something like 68 police officers have been killed. I'm just Googling that real quickly. I'm not sure if that statistic Mm -hmm. is accurate. Since you posted these two articles, there was another mass shooting of police officers, three killed. It's just heartbreaking, you know. I I told uh, somebody that that afternoon, Sunday afternoon, about the shooting. They said, oh, yeah, I heard about that in Dallas. And I'm like, no, there's another one. So it's yeah. this is not a one-way street. This is becoming far too commonplace, and it's terrifying. And again, there are all these different sides. So let's talk about your articles. I want to refer people to coldcasechristianity.com. Again, coldcasechristianity.com. And that is uh, your website, and you have a ton there. Congratulations, by the way. I don't think okay. I know of an apologist with a sharper website with more content. So uh, way to go on that. So please, if you're listening, find a time to go to coldcasechristianity.com. There are two articles that you wrote about a week ago that deal with this. One deals with um, the Christian response, and it's six ways Christians can respond to the growing police dilemma. And the other one deals with the issue, and it says six things that may change the way you think about police officers. Do you mind if we talk about those for a minute? Yeah, please. I'm happy to. Awesome. Okay, so what are some of those six things that may change the way people think about police officers? Yeah, and I, when I wrote this, you know, I wrote it, and after I wrote it, I read it, you know, the next day, and I thought, there's so much more I could say in each wow. category. Maybe I'll have to do that, because my fear, of course, is that any time you try to abbreviate something, you either end up, you know, uh, leaving something out that makes you appear as though you don't have a balance on the issue. Mm-hmm. But I think what I've tried to do here is just to, to, to say six things about law enforcement in general. The first is that no one's more upset about bad police shootings than good police officers. Mm-hmm. Nothing makes us crazier. 
No, there's no way we want to be seen in this light. And so when someone does, I can tell you, I'll just be honest with you. I used to watch Cops, the TV show, mm-hmm. and I would see some of the officer tactics, the defensive tactics, you know, how they would walk up on a police car. And, and some agencies are very small, and maybe they don't have the level of training that larger agencies do. You know, the, the higher the crime rate and the larger the city, your cops probably are going to be even better trained because they're constantly dealing with danger. And so if I'm in a place where I only maybe have make a stop like this once or twice a year, well, then I'm not going to be very good at it. If I'm making four or five of these a night, I get better at it. So I used to be embarrassed by watching the tactics of some of the things I would see online from cop shows where no one's been trained. And so I can tell you that this, we, all, we all do this, uh, and we are embarrassed. And I'm sure the other side would say the same thing, that 91% of law-abiding citizens is, is, is probably the first to get upset when somebody does something that's just openly wrong, and it's like, ah, now we look, we look foolish. Number two, that people have to understand that what we do is proactive. In other words, there aren't any patrolling firemen, but there are patrolling police officers because you don't just want us to respond to a crime. You actually want us to stop the crime before it occurs. Well, how in the world are we supposed to do that? Well, we look at crime rates from the night before, all the crime reports, and then we start to go out and look or give extra patrol to those areas where these crimes are occurring, or we look for the people who have been described in the reports. And that's dicey. Think about that for a minute. Do you really want us to do that? We've got to make a decision as a culture if we want our officers to continue to try to work proactively. Third, you have to remember that we get to see the worst slice of all culture because that's who calls us to the scene. If more than likely, if you're calling a police officer, it's not because you're trying to report a really good day. <laughs> it's not even like uh, other situations where you're looking for medical help. You're calling a police officer because you've got either a life-threatening or just a mess of domestic violence. And so when you get to these, it's really easy to get a distorted view. Not every husband is beating their wife or vice versa, but you're only going to be called to those households where that's happening. And so it's hard to keep you know, a, a clear perspective on this. So just keep that in mind as you're assessing how it is officers respond to things. And remember that we don't work aimlessly. That's the fourth thing that we do actually target the, the, the described – so, for example, if I had a series of, of armed robberies in the North End involving redheaded white males in a tan car, well, then guess what I'm looking for tomorrow? Redheaded, tan, uh, red-headed white male in a tan car. Now, you might drive through my city as a redhead in a tan car and have nothing to do with this series, but you're probably going to get contacted by a police officer. Why? Because I've got a report from yesterday in which this very description was offered for the suspect. Now, we have to be very careful. If we're going to do that, we have to be very communicative, talk to people, explain why we're doing stuff. But in the end, don't be surprised. Now, this is the problem. This is where that controversial, incredibly controversial thing comes up, is that if you look at the number of African Americans in the culture, it's about 13 to 15 percent. And you compare how many crimes are committed compared to, say, white, uh, the white population. You're going to find out that, that the crimes committed by African Americans are higher. I mean, it's, it's the ugly truth. I don't like it. I'm disappointed by it. I'm conflicted by it because at the same time, I know that the, I don't think that group is fair to judge that group on the basis of any behavior of a subset. But I also know that if we get 10 crime reports, the next day we're going to be looking for the suspects that we didn't write those on the crime reports. The victims wrote those suspect descriptions on their crime reports. We're simply going to respond to crime reports. So what do you do? You're stuck between a rock and a hard place, and that's really what I'm seeing in law enforcement. I've seen it for years. 
The fifth thing is that police, police officers don't want to use deadly force. Oh, my gosh. I can tell you that I worked the OIS team. That's the officer-involved shooting team for five years. And in that shooting team, I went to every officer-involved shooting. And I can't tell you how many times afterwards that officer is going to suffer some kind of problem as a result of having to get involved in a shooting. And they will say things like, why didn't he just do what I asked him to do? Because he didn't want to find himself in that position. And so this is – we have a palette of potential uses of force. We can use our fists. We can use our command presence and our voice. We could use a taser if need be. Or we have this whole palette of options. Of course we want to use the lowest thing on the continuum. We don't want to use the highest thing on the continuum. But we also are not obligated to get killed before we pick the right one. So we're always going to do our best to match at an appropriate level the kind of force we're being confronted with. And you might be, well, wait a minute, how can people get shot unarmed? Well, this happens all the time. They just ran an experiment, as a matter of fact, for an African-American leader of the Black Lives Matter movement, and they ran him through a shooting, shoot-don't-shoot scenario, and he ended up doing exactly what white officers do when being charged by somebody who was unarmed. He ended up shooting him. And, of course, afterwards, they thought, well, you just shot an unarmed man. And when they asked him, why did you shoot him? He said, well, he got too close. He got in my space. I felt like I had to defend myself. Okay. We don't want to use deadly force often, but we find ourselves there because we've run out of other options. And you might say, well, how can you run out of, of the unarmed man? Well, he's the particular thing I'm talking about. This guy who was role-playing and was attacking him in a role-playing scenario was probably 55 pounds heavier than he was, and he thought he had no other options. Last thing in that article I talk about is that in the end – even though we have all this controversy, uh, police officers are pretty well received, and mm -hmm. we have a tendency to forget that. So I listed some surveys here in which we talk about you know, the, kind of the, the number like in 2011, how many people are contacted, and what small percentage of these contacts actually you know, going wrong. And also how in 2011 they did a poll, and the overwhelming majority, regardless of race, uh, really did say that they would, number one, uh, they would have the police back. They thought the police were helpful. They were satisfied with the police response. So I guess what I want to say in that is that we have to be careful not to vilify, even as a culture, right? Forget about African-American community, uh, community vilifying police. Even as a culture, remember, like you said, most people find that the quality of police work in America is something different than it is in other cultures. Now, that does not mean that we have an excuse for any misbehavior. As a matter of fact, I would say, as somebody who's done my best to uphold uh, really the, the image of God and everything I've done, I would say that if someone's going to intentionally misuse the, bad, misuse the badge, I want that person out of our ranks, and I want the punishment. And I can tell you most DA offices will give an officer when they're found guilty as high as they can because we feel like officers are in a position where they should know better. They have to be the standard. Now, you might look at this, though, and say, well, don't you see those cases where, where it seems like officers uh, are either being not punished enough or they're not being convicted at all, they're being acquitted? And I would say that there are times even I'm frustrated, uh, but I also know this. I've learned a long time ago. I'm not sitting on that jury. They get every piece of information, always. I don't, as, as somebody on the outside kind of tracking along. So I have to respect when it's a jury. Are we suggesting there's a conspiracy? You know, that, For example, recently in the uh, – the deaths in New York City where we've got these officers being acqu acquitted, right? They were all charged with a, 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 um, the death of, a, of a, an inmate, a, somebody in custody who died in the back of their police car. Well, it's minority-led uh, jurors 
that are now acquitting these officers one after the other. And so what are we suggesting here, that there's some conspiracy that is in place? And I, I, I would agree to give you that maybe some racism involved anywhere. But I think in that situation, we have to respect the decisions of jurors. And keep in mind that whatever happens in the court system is different than the officers who are working on the street. I can get a bad decision in the court case, and it won't be the, my fault as the officer. So we have to be very careful to separate those things. Hmm. Well, we're, we're getting close to the end here, but I would love for you to real briefly summarize the six ways that Christians can respond to the growing police dilemma. Okay, first thing, we have to be educating ourselves, both sides, but not just to understand. We have to, our education has to be pointed and directed toward compassion and mm -hmm. empathy. The Christian response is not just to get data, because we can get data to actually argue against the other side more. No, we need to get the data so we can understand where they're coming from, so we can be more empathetic and more compassionate. Both sides need to do this about the other. So we have to educate, but with a purpose toward uh, empathy. Number two, we have to love the other side because there is no other side. Mm, good point. This is the whole thing that drives me nuts is that yes, it's, a, it's otherism that's the problem. We've got to stop with the otherism because it takes all kinds of different shapes. It's racism. It's, it's about envy of economic status. It's about anything you can think of. It's otherism. We've got to let that go. And you know, as a Christian, we as a lead the way on that. Third, we have to be patient. We see in Scripture all the time we're to be slow to anger, slow to talk, quick to hear. Well, what's that about? It's about us. When we see an event occur, as leaders in the culture, don't get on social media and say anything. And when questioned, my police chiefs would always frustrate the press because they would say, look, we're investigating it right now. We've removed that officer from duty. I'll have something for you in the next few weeks. We're putting all the forces of our investigative bureau on this, plus the DA's office. We'll know something soon. But the minute you think you know all the details when, in fact, you don't, you're going to probably make a statement that's going to be more inflammatory than uh, informative. Mm -hmm. So be very careful to take time as a leader. Don't say anything until you have all the data. Uh, fourth, we've got to rely on, on prayer and the power of God. And sometimes when you say that, it's so trite as a Christian but I've noticed two things about prayer in this context. Number one, of course, we're, we're drawing upon the power of God to work. But there's a second important truth that's often overlooked, and that's that communal prayer has the power to unify. When two forces are on the street picketing, we saw a recent example of this on CNN, and they just decide to cross the street toward each other, and they find themselves then united in prayer, which somebody decided to do in this particular example I'm describing, you would not believe what happens. Communal prayer reminds us of our common dependence on God. So we have to start to not just pray, but pray with each other for each other. Five, we've got to help agencies train and hire. In other words, the better you are trained in defensive tactics, the better you'll be able to use the lowest level of defensive tactics in any contact. But I'm going to tell you something. As a citizen, citizens typically never want to fund police departments to the level they would have to be funded in order to be trained well. So what happens is we say, yeah, they should be better trained. Well, okay, it's going to cost you $3 million as a city this year and every year from now on. Well, that's I'm sorry, we can't do it. Well, then we're going to have a problem going forward because a lot of this is going to come back to, mm -hmm. to defensive tactics and to ethics. And the last one, we've got to be courageous enough to seek and address the root causes because in the end, the root cause is really a worldview problem. We've walked away from the one worldview that makes sense of who we are as humans. And two, we've abandoned the family. When I worked gangs in the inner city for two years, what I discovered was this. 
every group I worked, if it was Korean gangsters, white gangsters, Hispanic gangsters, or African-American gangsters, had the same common problem, and it wasn't about ethnicity. It wasn't about culture. It wasn't about economic status. It was, plain and simple, lack of dad, and lack of dad for different reasons. Some of these dads actually still lived at home with their family, but they were workaholics, or they were kind of deadbeat dads, or whatever they may be. They weren't involved in the lives of their kids. Dads are huge because there's a direct proportional relationship between lack of dad, incarceration, drug use, teenage pregnancy, all kinds of things that we would say are problems have a direct relationship to lack of dad. So we have to be brave about this and address the problem where we see it. Well, Jay Warner Wallace, thank you again for your service, and thank you for coming on the show. I would enc- Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It was great to be here with you. Yeah, I would encourage you to go to coldcasechristianity.com to get both of the articles and a whole lot of information about what we talked about today. Definitely check out everything else while you're there. And please get Jay Warner Wallace's books, God's Crime Scene, Cold Case Christianity, and Alive. Thanks again so much for being on the God Solution Show, and we'll uh, talk to you again soon. Thanks, brother. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye-bye. All right, thanks. Bye. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Jay Warner Wallace. Again, go to coldcasechristianity.com to find out more about him. I don't have a whole lot of time, so I'll just say if you've not trusted in Christ, please believe in him as Savior and Lord. And go to godsolutionshow.com for this interview and all of our past shows. Like I always say, an open mind, an honest heart, a humble disposition, and a diligent search always lead to Jesus. And that's my greatest hope and the only answer for this nation, Jesus. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to The God Solution with Nate Herbst. We hope that you were encouraged by what you heard today and are better equipped to share Christ this week. You can get the audio from today's broadcast and all the past God Solution shows at godsolutionshow.com. Thanks for listening and being a part of The God Solution.